33. I want to read a section of our text for us. And then we'll pray and we'll get into the message. Exodus 33. I'm going to read for us the last part of this text, beginning in verse 12, reading through the end of the chapter. This will be the the, the last part we get to, but in many ways, and as this is structured, it's, it's the pinnacle. It's, it's what everything that we're going to see is, is driving towards. So let's read this. Exodus 33, beginning in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. And you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. I want to pray here in just a second, but before I do, I just want to uh, share a a couple updates on some folks uh, in our church or related to our church uh, so that we can better know how to pray for these folks. I know many of you are aware and have been praying for Paula's sister, Sandy, as she has had some recent uh, health issues. She's currently in the hospital. In fact, Paula told me today she's having uh, procedures this afternoon and then some more uh, later this week. And so we want to continue to be praying for her. Uh, She's had these uh, struggles physically, and we just want to pray certainly for her physical well-being, for doctors who uh, do these procedures for uh, for her, and then uh, more importantly, maybe just to pray that that the peace of God would would overshadow her, that she would she would know God's presence with her and and His comfort with her during this time. And and as we have opportunity, we can uh, pray for her and encourage her uh, as we are able. And then also, I, we want to continue to pray for Barb's brother, uh, Bob, who is who is uh, who many of you remember was was here in Portland getting treatment uh, a couple months ago and is since back home in Legrand and and he has uh taken a turn for the worse the the prognosis is is not good humanly speaking for him and and so Barb is 
is praying and, and planning to go uh, help him, his wife as she cares for him in, in what appears to be his final weeks and months. And, and so we want to lift their family up and continue to pray for them. Um, pray for Barb that God would give her the wisdom and knowing when to go and, and what to do. I know that she is very mindful of wanting God's leadership and knowing uh, how she can best serve uh, her family in this in this time. And so we want to we want to pray for these the, the health aspect of these situations, but also that God's God's name would be would be praised and and seen, and His grace would be experienced uh, by these folks, and and even by extension us as we as we know them and, and lift them up before him. So let me pray now for, for these and you uh, take these folks with you this week and continue to pray and encourage uh, as, as you think of it and are able to. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in prayer because you, you right now are the one who is sitting on the throne. You are the only one worthy of our praise. You are the only one worth our time to pray to. And we come to you in confidence, knowing that you have all power and might and wisdom and strength. We also come in confidence knowing that you hear our prayers. You have commanded us to come to you with our burdens, to cast them upon you because you care for us. So we lift up our brothers and sisters who are struggling physically and going through difficult trials. Lord, we recognize that these trials are from your hand. These are trials that you have ordained to make your name known, to strengthen your people, to demonstrate your grace and mercy in lives. And so we pray above all else that your name would be known that your gracious mercy would be experienced and understood even if in small and incremental ways but that those affected even all of us who know and are praying for these folks would would have the opportunity to comprehend more of your love and your grace We pray for Sandy and for Bob physically right now. Pray that you would strengthen them. Pray that you would ease any pain that they are experiencing. Pray that they would know the peace of God that passes all understanding. That they would truly feel a sense of your presence. I pray for those who care for them. Give them strength and wisdom 
pray that you would accomplish your will through these circumstances. And I pray that we would be faithful to lift them up, recognizing that you alone are worthy and able to answer our prayer. And I pray that we would be able, even as we will learn in a few minutes, that we will be able to cast these burdens at your feet and and allow you to do as you please. That you would give us the grace to respond in worship no matter what your answer is in these prayers. Pray that your word this afternoon would accomplish that for which you sent it out. That your Holy Spirit would take what we read and what we say and drive it home to our hearts that we would truly believe what you have revealed in your word and that it would impact the way that we think and the way that we live for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by asking us a question just to consider in our own minds. The question is this, what is it that I need to know about God right now to accomplish that which he's called me to do? What is it that I need to know about God right now in order to accomplish that which he's called me to do? You see, Moses in this chapter is at a sort of crossroads at this point. He's at a crossroads in his leadership of his people. And ultimately, as we, we will see, as we just read, Moses understands that he needs to see God's glory in order to continue to follow him in obedience. In order to do that which God has called him to do, he needs to see God's glory. And I submit to us that whether we're at a similar sort of crossroads or not, whatever it is God is calling us to do, what we need to see, and certainly what we need to see from this text today is a sort of glimpse of God's glory. We need to understand more of God's glory because I believe that God showed Moses his glory. We'll see that next week in the next chapter, the actual fulfillment of of what Moses asked him to do. But Moses needed to see the glory of God revealed to him in order to be able to follow God in obedience to what he has called him to do. Our study of this text today will help us answer the question, what is the glory of God? Because God actually reveals his glory perhaps in a way that is unexpected to us. So what is God's glory and how is it demonstrated? How does God demonstrate his glory. Those are the questions that we'll eventually get to and arrive at answers to from this text. But before we get to that, there's a bit of ground we need to cover first. So to do that, let's look at the first six verses of Exodus chapter 33. Let me read these for us, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go from here, you and the people whom you have brought out 
brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. You remember from chapter 32, which we studied last week, that God, in response to the idolatry committed by the children of Israel, they they fashioned this golden calf as a representative of, of God that which they would bow down and worship. And God, in response to their rebellious idolatry against Him, ultimately, according to verse 28 of chapter 32, killed 3,000 of them because of their sin. The end of chapter 32, verse 35, says that the Lord also sent a plague upon the people because of their sin. We felt last week the weight of this sin against God. We, we felt the seriousness with which God took their sin. And yet now, God comes to them, comes to Moses with this command to, to get up and go enter the promised land. Go up and he promises to drive out all of those people that were dwelling in that land. God essentially promises that he is going to fulfill this promise that he had made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And in one sense, we can imagine that God's judgment has passed. Now we're, we're, we're going up to the land that he's promised us. He's going to fulfill his promise. But yet we read that, in fact, the word that he gives to this people is, is referred to as a disastrous word. A devastating word, worse than anything else God could have done to them. And what was it that God had told them? He said, yes, you're going to go and you're going to enter the promised land. You're gonna, I'm going to drive out all the people that live there before you. I'm going to fulfill my promise. But what he added to that was that he was not going to go with them. He was going to send an angel before them to accomplish this, but God himself would not go with them. This to the children of Israel was a disastrous word. This disastrous word caused them to put off their their ornaments, to, to go into a state of mourning over what they had lost. They had lost the presence of God. I mean, chapter 32 ends with almost the, the suspense of God saying, In verse 34, 
In the day when I visit, I will visit them upon their sin. There was this cloud of God's impending judgment upon them. And yet he comes to them with, on one hand, hope that, that his promise would be fulfilled, but on the other hand, the judgment that he, was, he, that he himself was not going to go with them. And the people, through their actions, through their, their putting off of their, their ornaments, this was the same stuff that they, not exactly the same stuff, but, but part of the same things that they had gathered to, to create the golden calf. And now they put this stuff off of them. They, they, they go into a state of mourning. Because what God did to them was far worse than the 3,000 that had been killed, the plague that had been sent on them, even the threat of being blotted out of the book that God has written that he talks about in chapter 32. All of that was nothing to them in comparison to the loss of God's presence. The people recognized through their mournful repentance for their sin that entering the promised land was nothing. It lacked any meaning and significance and joy apart from God going with them. You see, the promised land was was not worth traveling to if God didn't travel there with them. And so the people mourn. And even God then commands them to put off, to strip themselves of their ornaments. This is the same imagery that, that God used earlier in the book of Exodus when he, when he told the children of Israel to plunder the Egyptians. That's probably where they got actually most of this jewelry, these ornaments that they, they put off. These were things that they had plundered from the Egyptians. And in a sense, now they are plundering themselves in mournful repentance over their sin. And it seems to be the state the rest of their journey. They put all of this off, verse 6 tells us, from Mount Horeb onward. Mount Horeb, where they were onward. The rest of their journey, they put off these ornaments as a remembrance, as, as a, a sign of ongoing mourning and repentance over their sin. And so it's ironic that the people lost in chapter 33 the very thing that they were trying to gain in chapter 32. They were trying to gain a sort of presence of God. You see, Moses had gone up the mountain, and the reason that they they intended to craft this golden calf was because Moses was gone for so long. They wanted the presence of God in their midst, so they created that golden calf. And so the very thing that they were trying to gain in doing that, they actually lose because of their sin. Truly a disastrous word. God was not going to travel with them. His reason was because of his own holiness. Because God, as a holy God, could not dwell in the presence of sin, lest he consume them. So in one sense, this was for their safety also. It was for their safety, lest he consume them. They were a stiff-necked people. They were a rebellious people against him. And he could not go with them, lest they be destroyed. And yet the point is the people recognized that it would have been better for them to to be destroyed than to go any further without the presence of God. This was a disastrous word. But moving on 
this idea takes a step forward. In this section about the tent of meeting in verses 7 through 11 might seem at first to be even out of place or incidental in some ways to the story here. But actually, I think it makes a significant point about God's response to the people's sin. Let's read verses 7 through 11. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And so, perhaps you, you pick up on the significance of, of this section because just a few chapters earlier, what did, we, what did we see? We saw God lay out for Moses and for the people this plan for this tabernacle. And we spent, there was, God spent three chapters of our text laying out what this tabernacle was to look like, how it was to be constructed, constructed in great detail. This was going to be the place where God would come and dwell in the people's midst. The tabernacle was going to be placed right in the middle and the, the people were going to camp around it and God was going to come and dwell in their midst. And yet here we, we find the place where God dwells to be where? Outside the camp. Even as verse 7 says, far off from the camp. And so every time Moses got up to leave the camp, the people would watch him go outside the camp. They would be reminded of what they had lost. God's presence no longer dwelt in their midst. Instead, God dwelt outside the camp. And Moses had to go outside the camp to meet with God. And even here, we see in their response this this looking, watching Moses, watching the pillar of cloud of God's presence descend on that tent. They would watch that. And they, they would worship God from afar. Again, I think an indication of their repentance, understanding what they had lost, worshiping God, understanding why God's presence was outside the camp. And what this demonstrates, this section, demonstrate, demonstrates us a couple things. One, what we've just talked about, God's presence in a very, very visible sense has left them. The first part of the chapter, he told them that he was not going to go with them. And now, in a very visible sense for them, his presence dwells outside the camp. They no longer have the same sort of access and intimacy with him as they, they would have in the tabernacle in their midst. 
But it also sets up in, in a new way this idea of Moses as their mediator. Moses is the one that, that goes out to meet with God in the tabernacle or in the tent of meeting outside the camp. Moses is the one that, according to God's choice and plan, and, and because he did not participate in the rebellion in the camp in chapter 32, he was the only one worthy to go into the presence of God on behalf of the people. We'll see more of that a little later on. But the people hear this disastrous word from God that he was not going to go with us. They, they see a visible reminder of the presence of God leaving them through this tent of meeting outside the camp. As we move ahead, we see, thirdly, the intercession of Moses on behalf of the people. In one of these face-to-face meetings, probably in the tent of meeting, Moses has this conversation with God. And Moses takes up with God the matter of him not going the rest of the way with his people as they journey the rest of their their journey. And we, we read earlier this text. I won't take time to read it again. But in this intercession for the people, Moses takes up four questions with God. Four things Moses brings up before God. The first, found in verse 13, is this request for God to show Moses his ways. He says, if I have found favor in your sight, show me now your ways. Moses' basis for this request before God was on the basis of Moses calling to this task. This was not a task that Moses had called himself to. I mean, even look at the way God talks to Moses in verse 12. It says, bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send. God had called Moses to this task. And Moses feels like God owes him a bit of an explanation. You see, back in Exodus chapter 3, God had called him. God had promised to be with Moses, to strengthen Moses. And even interestingly, the beginning of chapter 33, God calls these the people that Moses brought out of Egypt. No mention of God being the one to bring them out. These were the people Moses brought out. And in a sense, Moses is reminding God that this was, this was a task that God had called Moses to. This wasn't a task Moses had sought out. In fact, you remember from the earlier part of Exodus, Moses tried everything he could to get out of this task. And now he is reminding God of the favor that, that Moses found from God. Not favor because of anything intrinsic in Moses, but favor because God had set this calling on him. God had chose Moses for this task. This is the basis for which Moses makes this request of God to show me your ways. What Moses wants to understand is, God, how are you going to fulfill your promise in this way? 
Moses is the mediator. He, he is taking up the cause of the people before God. He is acting in the people's interest before God. Wanting to know what God's plan is going to be for his people. Secondly, Moses at the end of verse 13 says to God, Consider too that this nation is your people. We've seen a couple instances already. And if you read again through this, this chapter, you'll notice how God refers to the people. He refers to them as the people. Not his people. It's the people, Moses' people. There is even in God's language a separation of the people from himself. And Moses is quick to remind God that this nation is your people. Yes, they have sinned. Yes, they have rebelled. But these are your people. This is still your nation. And again, just like as is the case with Moses individually, it's the case with Israel as a nation. This was a nation that did not seek out God so that they could be his people. This was a a nation that God himself sought out and called to be his people. Moses is reminding God of, of his special calling upon this people. Moses is concerned that God remembers that he had chosen these people. He had made promises to these people. And in a sense, Moses is reminding God of his obligation to fulfill his promise. Thirdly, Moses takes before God this request. If your presence won't go with me, verse 15, do not bring us up from here. Moses recognizes what the people recognized when they considered the word of judgment from him to be a disastrous word. The going into the promised land meant nothing apart from God's presence going with them. Moses says, essentially, if you're not going to go, I'm not going to lead this people. I have no interest in leading this people apart from your presence going with us. I think this request, attitude of Moses and an attitude of the people remind us of a theme that has come up over and over again in the book of Exodus that we've, we've tried to draw out that the point of God's deliverance of his people was not just so that they could be out of slavery and live in, live in a new land, a land of peace, a land, as he describes, flowing with milk and honey, a good land. That's not the point. The point was not just to free them to live in in their own place. The point was that that God would be with them. The point was that God would demonstrate His power over their enemies and then dwell with them in this promised land. The point was to be able to enjoy this new relationship with God as their Savior who rescues them from their enemies. And so as we have said through this study of Exodus, it was actually God's purpose was to free them from bondage to one master, to actually bring them into a a new relationship with him as their master, a benevolent master. And even as the New Testament goes on to refer to us as slaves of God, 
It's a new kind of slavery. A slavery to Him as, as our Savior and as our King. This was the point of what God was doing. And Moses is, in a sense, reminding God of that. That there's no, there's no reason to go to the promised land apart from God's presence going with them. And then fourthly, maybe in many ways the most significant as it relates to the character of God, Moses asked God this question, how are the other nations going to view us as distinct? This was God's purpose. It was to make known to all the nations around them that these were His people. These were the people that He had set His love on. These were distinct people from the rest of the world. And Moses says to God, if, if you don't go with us, we're not distinct. There's no difference between us and the nations around us. Throughout the story of Exodus, God has been committed to the revelation of His name to the ends of the world. He wanted nations and kings and people to see that He was the true King. He had power over all other so-called sovereign kings. And He was very clear in early parts of, of Exodus, when as they related to the nation of Egypt, that all that God was doing was to make His name known. That His name would be worshipped. And Moses asked God a, a very right and good question. What set them apart as distinct was God's presence with them. So to summarize Moses' requests from God as he intercedes for the people is to remind God of the special relationship that Moses and the nation enjoyed with God. Not because of anything they had done, but because of what God had done in, in choosing them to be his people. Choosing Moses to be the leader of the people. The man that he, God would work through. And by doing this, he reminds God that God's own reputation was at stake. And so we come to this vision of the glory of God. Because here, God gives Moses an answer to all of these questions that he has. God's response to Moses in verse 17 this very thing that you have spoken, all, all of this that, that Moses has just spoken to God, all of this I will do. I will go with you so that my name is once again known. I, I can once again, you, you, the people will once again be the distinct people of Yahweh. Because I have set my love on you, I will go with you. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Because of God's actions, because of God's initiative, He is committed to doing that which He had promised to do. 
So God, in a sense, relents. No longer is he going to simply send his angel to accomplish these things. He will go with his people. But the conversation with Moses takes a step forward. In verse 18, Moses, in response, says, Please show me your glory. And God's answer to Moses to this request requires some careful consideration on our part in order for us to understand what, what's going on here. What is, Moses, what is Moses really asking for here? And then it's important to note how God responds to Moses' request. So in order to, to see these things, I actually want, want to kind of work our way backwards through God's answer to him. I want us to jump ahead to verse 19. The last part of verse 19 where I think it's, is really the, the pinnacle of, of God's answer to Moses. This request to show Moses' his glory. When God tells Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This statement, this phrase is, takes the form of a Hebrew idiom which as you can see actually repeats the, the action without, without really clarifying anything. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. It's almost as if we would kind of resign ourselves to someone saying, you know, you're going to do what you're going to do. There, there's nothing I can do to stand in your way because you're, you're, you're going to do what you're going to do. And that's, that's the essence of, of what God is saying to Moses here. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. The point is, in this, repu- in this repetition of this action by God, God is pointing out the freedom that he has within himself to do what he chooses. God is free to act in whatever way he chooses. He is free to be gracious to whom he, he will be gracious. And he, will be, he is free to show mercy to whomever he will show mercy. I mean, this is the same thing essentially that he told Moses back in Exodus 3 as he revealed his name to him. You remember how he revealed his name? He, he told Moses, I am who I am. Again, God making the point that he is existent in himself. He is, he is free unto himself to do and be whatever he, he chooses to do. So God's revelation of his glory to Moses culminates here in verse 19 with this statement of his sovereign freedom to bestow mercy and grace on whomever he wills. So the glory of God is uniquely manifested in his demonstration of grace and mercy. So the question is this, what is, what is God's freedom to act and, and demonstrate mercy to, him, to whomever he will? What does that have to do with what's going on in the Exodus narrative? What is it, what is it about God's glory revealed in this way that, that impacts what Moses is doing and asking? 
Well, in one sense, whatever change there appears to be here in God's plan, and as we read through it, it it seems as though God has changed his mind. He's gone from doing one thing and Moses intercedes and now God does something else. I think God is making the point that all along, he's going to go with his people. He hasn't really changed his mind. This is, this is the purpose that he has had from the beginning. And he is free to demonstrate grace and mercy to whomever he wills. He is free to act any way he chooses. And he is free to, to act apart from anything Moses says or does. God's demonstration of grace and mercy is dependent not on Moses, but on God's choosing to exercise grace and mercy. I think on the other hand, it's, it's clear that there is there's really an effort by both God and Moses here to reaffirm this covenant with the people, with, with Moses. I've referred back to Exodus 3 several times already, and, and no doubt you're, you're seeing parallels between that interaction with God, between God and Moses and, and this. Moses in Exodus 3 wanted to know that God was going with him. He wasn't going to go into Egypt and try to lead his people out of slavery without knowing that God was going with him. And now here again, Moses isn't willing to pack up all these people and head toward the promised land apart from knowing that God is going to go with them. And so God, in revealing his glory and his his character, his sovereign freedom to act as he chooses, is a further demonstration to Moses is going with him. Another observation is that it certainly makes sense that Moses would would want to know something about God's glory when the beginning of chapter 33, what was God's reason for not going with the people? It was because they were stiff-necked. And if God went with them, they would be consumed because they're stiff-necked people. And so Moses, I'm sure, is wondering, okay, how, how now can you go with this stiff-necked people and not consume them? What is it about God that, yes, He is holy and just when it comes to sin, to where sin and sinners are consumed in His presence because of His holiness, but then, on the other hand, now He is able to go with them. And it's precisely because of this sovereign freedom that God has to bestow grace and mercy on whomever he wills. So God answers Moses' request to see his glory by promising to proclaim his name, this name Yahweh, the name that he revealed to Moses in Exodus 3. And in that name is bound up this freedom to bestow mercy and grace on whomever he wills. And through this reaffirmation of his calling of Moses, 
Moses is now able, and, and we'll see this in, in coming chapters. Moses is now able to go with this people, to lead this people the rest of the way. This God of grace and mercy will go with them. So what does this understanding of God's sovereign freedom mean for us? We've seen what it means for the people. They can now have God dwelling in their midst. And in fact, we're going to see that they will, they will actually build the tabernacle. Spoiler alert, the book of Exodus ends with them building the tabernacle. So they will once again have this presence of God dwelling in their midst. That's good news for the Israelites. It's good news for Moses because now he's, he's got the backing of God to lead his people. Gives him the confidence he needs to, to follow God and, and obey God's calling. So what does it mean for us? I've got a few ways that I want us to consider this. This sovereign freedom of God and how it impacts us. Some obviously and some maybe not so obviously. First of all, I I think, hopefully obviously to, to us, God saves us according to his sovereign mercy. God saves us according to his sovereign and gracious mercy. When we understand the freedom of God to bestow grace and mercy on whomever he wills, we're really left with no choice but to conclude that this is how he acts in the personal salvation of individuals. Paul makes this point in the book of Romans. As he argues in that context for this sovereign freedom of God to choose. And even in Romans 9, he makes this point by using this text from Exodus. And in that context in in Romans 9, Paul is answering the objection that God's choice of Jacob over Esau was unjust. And he answers that objection by pointing to God's sovereign freedom revealed to Moses. Romans 9, verses 14 through 16. Listen to this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Because he had chosen Jacob over Esau? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So there is in this whole story a sort of picture of what happens in our own salvation. You see, we, like the Israelites, are a stiff-necked people. You and I are just like them in that we have rebelled against Him. We have disobeyed Him. We, we, are sin- we have sinned against God through our idolatry. But also, like the Israelites, we have a mediator. Our mediator, Jesus Christ, who is described in Hebrews as going outside the camp. 
Just like Moses went outside the camp on behalf of the people, our mediator, Jesus Christ, went outside the camp. And instead of going to meet with God, as Moses did, Jesus actually went outside the camp and and felt the abandonment of God. Jesus experienced the abandonment of God's presence with him. Jesus took on him the judgment for our sin in order that we can live in God's presence. And we will never experience, as his children, we will never experience abandonment from God. We will never experience what God threatened the Israelites with, that that he would not go with us. In Christ, we will never experience that because Jesus has already experienced that on our behalf. And so we, like Moses, have found favor with God. Not because we are favorable, but because God has chosen to demonstrate His grace and mercy to us according to His sovereign freedom. And so we marvel. If you are here and you know Christ as your Savior, you ought to marvel at what God has done. We have no claim to His grace and mercy. He, He bestows grace and mercy on whomever He wills. It has nothing to do with us. And so we marvel at God's grace, which He's demonstrated to us. And even if you are here and you do not know Christ, I hope that you will marvel that you are here today. You are hearing from God. You are hearing of His grace. My prayer for you is that you would respond as the Israelites did in, in mournful repentance for your sin. And even as they look to their mediator Moses to go to God for them, that even today you would look to Christ our mediator as your Savior. So this understanding of the demonstration of God's glory as His sovereign freedom impacts us because it It pictures our own experience in in salvation, that God saves us according to his gracious mercy, but also God ordains our lives according to his sovereign mercy and gracious mercy. God ordains our lives according to his gracious mercy. If we continue to apply this to our lives, not only does he choose us in salvation, but he also continues to lead us and direct our steps according to His His grace and mercy. In a parallel fashion with the Israelites, not only does He rescue us from our sin, but now He is working to bring us into the promised land. He's working to move us through, to sanctify us. Once again, though, according to the the freedom of His will. Simply put, the the purpose for which God has saved us is really the same purpose for which He has saved the Israelites and is moving them. It's to experience His presence. 
God saves us so that we would know him, that we would see him, that we would commune with him face to face, and that we would continue to be more and more satisfied in him. That we would more and more trust him, knowing that he is good. The challenge, however, is is trusting God and even believing God to be true or believing God to be good when our prayers don't end like Moses' prayer to God did. See, in one sense, Moses had it pretty easy because he prayed to God and, and God answered his prayer in the way Moses wanted him to. But what happens when God does not respond in the way we want him to? What happens when our lives do not seem to reflect the, the choice of a good God? What happens when we walk through trials and suffering? What comfort is it that bad things in my life are there because of the sovereign choice of God? What what comfort is there in, in knowing that God is sovereignly free to do as He pleases when His sovereign choice means suffering for me? There really is no easy answer to this question. You know, in one sense, and as we were singing earlier, in one sense we we should just stop and, and recognize that behold our God seated on his throne. And that's in, in a lot of ways the point of this. He he is on his throne, and because of that he does what he pleases. And and so it's it's I mean that's not an easy answer. That's 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 not easy to just do, right? But as I thought about this, I've been helped by the writing of uh, Mark Talbot. He's a professor, but he's written on this topic. And some of the things he had to say were were very helpful. and Maybe will be helpful to to any here that are encountering suffering and even tempted to disbelieve the goodness of God and and even how how an understanding of, of God's glory in this way perhaps can help you. Talbot was writing in this section I read, he was writing in the context of John Piper's famous statement that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. We're familiar with that. And Talbot's response to that question is, how do those enduring what he calls profound suffering, how can they possibly enjoy any level of of happiness and satisfaction when all their experience leads them to question the very goodness of God. And he cites 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13. Let me read these. It says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And he then goes on to paraphrase Piper's statement. 
this way. God is even more glorified with regard to us when our hope and perhaps even our faith have failed and yet He remains faithful because of who He alone is. And He concludes with this exhortation. Let us seek everlasting pleasure as much as we can. But may our, our lives be monuments to His glory even when we can't. So my point is, that there will be times that it is far from our heart to be satisfied in God or there might be questions of God's goodness because of suffering, whether profound or not. And yet, God is glorified even in our faithlessness at times because in spite of our faithlessness he remains faithful and God is committed to not leaving us in a faithless condition as his people instead he calls on us to cast our cares on him cast our burdens on him we are called to Take everything to Him. And He promises the peace that passes all understanding. This is peace that doesn't make sense to us. It's peace that may not make sense to you right now. But God is faithful. And God is committed to His own glory. But we need to remember that God is is also free to demonstrate grace and mercy according to his own purpose and plan, his own will. And we are left to trust him. And even in that, there is no guarantee that that this will necessarily even happen in this life. And I hope that's not discouraging. But I hope that it's, it's encouraging for us to, to continue to seek God who, however long it takes, is, is committed to doing this work in us. And even as we interact with each other, we, we can be reminded that even God is working in our body according to His gracious mercy. And He has brought us together to bear one another's burdens, to exhort one another to encourage one another you see god is not going to sanctify all of us in a cookie cutter fashion that is all the same way god is going to sanctify us in in individual ways and so we are called to again according to hebrews stir up one another to love and good works not letting, one, not letting any one of us become discouraged, doing what we can to encourage each other and minister God's grace and mercy to each other. Because the work of the church is accomplished by the working of our God in and through us to entrust ourselves to His grace and to help each other entrust ourselves to His grace.
and to accomplish what He will through us. And it leaves us to just worship Him and watch the way that He will demonstrate His grace and mercy in our lives individually, in our body corporately. We have the opportunity to take part in that work for His glory because ultimately it is the character of His name that is at stake. This is His glory, His gracious mercy. We receive it and we are, we are able to minister it to one another, pointing each other to Him as its source. So my prayer is that we would we would take part in that. That we would obey the Lord as He leads us to act, whatever that looks like. May He continue to grant us His presence and peace that passes understanding because of His presence with us, because He dwells with us through Christ. Father, thank you for your presence. Thank you that you are here with us today. By your Holy Spirit, you are instructing us through your word. I pray that you would take what we've said today, take your word and and minister it to each heart here, whatever the need is, whether it's unbelief, rebellion, doubt, fear, whatever we come in, whatever burden we, we carry in here today, pray that your spirit would use your word to minister to that need. And through it to make known the greatness of your glory, which is demonstrated through your gracious mercy toward us. May we continue to trust in your grace. Grow our hearts in faith, believing. you will fulfill your promises to us as your people. And the only hope that we have that this will happen is because we have found favor in your sight through Christ and his work on our behalf. I pray these things in his name. Amen.